Happy Monday, everybody. Hi there. Can't say it's really fall-like outside, no. <laughs> but it's not 97. So it's, we'll take this as a measure of progress. It's not 97. But about 30 minutes ago, I called Scott. I'd left the house before 1 o'clock to run up to Kroger and get some stuff in, in Frisco. It was the busiest that I've been in that Kroger since before COVID. I couldn't believe it was a Monday. And it was packed. And so I was calling Scott, I'm pulling at the Stonebriar. Meet me in the garage. Yeah, there was a sense of desperation <laughs> really in that phone call. <laughs> I have I was, to tell you that. I was afraid things were melt. I had my little my little uh, cooling bags, but still, I felt... Oh, man, that frozen pizza was going to take a big it hit. It was, and yet it's <laughs> only technically 84 degrees out, but it doesn't feel it. Well, that sounds strong. It's kind of like when we go to Israel, you know? The temperatures can be deceiving because they take the temperatures yes. in the shade. But you step into that sun in Israel this time of year, a month from now, when we're going to be there, that sun can really bake your brain. So anyway, we're glad everybody is here. We are at Isaiah. Um, we are starting today Isaiah 62. There are only 66 chapters of Isaiah. You know what that means. Yeah, we're going to be on to something new, and we're going to go to the New Testament. Oh, okay, good. And Isaiah was has been such a long thing, I think we're going to do a shorter book in the New Testament um, and sort of I'll look back over and see the things that we've done particularly the things that we've I've podcasted because I'd like to build up an ever-growing podcast library that will live on in St. Andrew. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my plan. That's, that's your plan. <laughs> that's my plan. So, okay. Well, very good. So what so, else is new, Patty? I just wanted to mention last night, and Gary, I'm so glad that you guys had a fun time. And I, I realize that some of you who are listening don't actually live in, in Dallas anymore and have, have moved away, but still join us, and we're so glad for that. But we had such a fun night last, uh, last night. It was part of this new Second Act ministry, and it was a pretty big shindig at the... Um, home of the Dallas Cowboys called The Star in Frisco. And it was 280 people, sold out crowd, and it was just nice. It really was. We, there was a lot of visiting. There was so much. <laughs> it, real, it really was just a time of fellowship, I would say. Yeah. Um, our head chairperson, Hank Neely, did get up and speak just a moment, uh, just to kind of tell people what about this new second act. and. Um, I think everybody really had a great time. I felt like if we did it again, yes, we need to have dancing. We need to have we a dance floor and a DJ. Need dancing. So <laughs> that would have been fun. I told that to Arthur last <laughs> night, and he was like, "Patty, you're right." And then I said, "Oh, but I might need like an orthopedic surgeon on standby." And nah. Yeah, he thought that no. was pretty funny, that but was, um, yeah. I was, of course, I was joking. But it really was fun. About the surgeon part, not the dancing part. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, I, was, okay. I was dancing with no really. dance floor. Oh, so always, you dance I, through life. Honey. I do. So, <laughs> what I wanted to say is that. You know, we had two big events already in Second Act. We had a speaker come to our class and then the gigantic 350-person lunch yeah. and this uh, big event last night. There will be a lot of events that continue. Not all of them are going to be that big, obviously, because it's a, it's a big deal to put on that much. But I really hope that those of you who live in, in Dallas will keep your eye open when you come to you know St. Andrew. You'll see it on the website because there's going to be different events that come up this fall. Uh, 
you know, once the end of November comes, it's pretty much Christmas. But starting in January, we will be really ramped up, and I really hope a lot of you will come. It's a great way to meet new friends. and Sure, just, it is. You know, so. And it's fun. And we, we do make new friends and meet we people and have a chance to visit with people. You know, we only see, you know, once a week on Sundays. Yes. And then you, not for long. Right, you only get a few minutes. So, anyway, um, this is a totally non-paid advertisement. <laughs> For the second act ministry. And I guess you better start us in prayer. I guess I've I taken better, up huh? all that time. That's all right. Oh, oh, sorry. One thing. Yeah. <gasps> Josie, I know you're on, and I know you're in Florida, and we will be praying for you. And for this hurricane, the storm has now been upgraded, and um, I don't have anybody that in my family living there right now, but I have a sister who owns a home up in the panhandle and i got a message earlier from beth kelly that her son and his wife and i think their new baby live in tampa and they're going to be evacuating tomorrow morning um please pray for those folks in in, in florida, florida yeah, that absolutely. west coast of florida um i think it's been a while since they've got hit hard by a storm sometimes it's gone up in the panhandle but um I lived myself in Sarasota for a while, and it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful part of the country, and and it's very crowded right now. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have moved to Florida, so please just keep those folks um, in your prayers that they're going to be okay, and everybody who needs to evacuate will get out. Sorry, that had to That's put that. Okay, that absolutely, is a it is for you. Is. Your prayers now. Okay, gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here. We're grateful for the care that you pour out on us, and we pray for the care that you will pour out on the people in Florida. Um, and we pray today that as we continue to make our way through Isaiah, that your Holy Spirit, that your empowering presence with us will open these words up, help us to, to see um, connections to, to Jesus and to the gospel and deepen our understanding of of how much you have done to reconcile all of us in the world, indeed all of creation, to yourself. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. All so. Right. And can you tell the group? I'll type it in, but exactly where you're starting today. Isaiah 62, verse 1. That's easy. That is easy, isn't it? Isaiah 62, verse 1. So, um... I'm trying to think of whether I want to make any introductory remarks. Maybe just to talk about last week for a second. So let's go back to last week because we had the famous passage in at the beginning of Isaiah 61 which talks about the, um, the freedom from the captives and the release of the prisoners and restoring sight to the blind that is the passage that jesus uses on the saturday in nazareth in luke 4 when he gets up to speak and to read the scripture and so and so it i said last week that it was really the way to understand what jesus is proclaiming is that it is a release from captivity um and uh, there's like the the jail cell doors are being thrown open, um, which ha is how you could understand the exile, the return from exile hundreds of years before, 
But even though they returned to the land, it was kind of like they were under house arrest. Right? So, consequently, um, Jesus comes and says, in essence, you know, your sins are forgiven. Even the house arrest is over. That, you know, God's victory over sin and death will be won on that on that, that cross just a few years after he reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in, in, in Nazareth. And it is in Jesus that, that God's work reaches its culmination. And there is a finishing act, a finishing time when Jesus returns, and we now live between those times of God's victory over sin and death and the finishing moment, the time when um, uh, God's kingdom will be seen by all. And Isaiah 61 speaks to all of that and, and as a message of hope. And so here in Isaiah 62 and 63 forward, you're going to get a lot of messages of hope. Now, there are, there are a few places where God has something harsh to say, but it's not so much directed at the Israelites. And there are passage where the, passages where the Israelites will confess their own sins. Um, and we'll talk all about that when we get there. But for now, we're just going to enjoy these these opening verses of Isaiah 62 because um, I find them pretty fascinating and pretty pretty uplifting about what God is going to do for Israel and just always remember always remember that this is not only about the family of the Jews the Israelites the family of Abraham whatever words you want to use this is about the whole world because Abraham was called by God to this so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. The Israelites are just the ones through whom God is working to accomplish this much larger purpose to reconcile humanity to God because indeed God so loved the world. And it doesn't say just say God so loved the Jews or God so loved the Roma or whatever it might be. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. And so that, you, you, even in the Old Testament, you can't lose sight of that larger mission. And fortunately, in Isaiah, you have lots of reminders, right? We just did some of that um, two weeks ago, whenever it was, maybe last week, when God talking about, well, I'm going to be gathering in the Gentiles, these nations that are come streaming to Mount Zion. What that is all about is God's gathering together all the Gentiles, God putting his arm around them all, and all of us acknowledging who God is and praising God and living in peace with one another. That's a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? So, I, we'll see how these glasses work. <laughs> you know you're old when you order statements like that, right? They're gone. They're off. On with other glasses. Here we go. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Now this is the prophet speaking, the prophet bringing God's word, but it's coming from the prophet's 
right? It's, it's, it's the prophet speaking here about this vindication. So vindication, I don't think, is a word that we use a lot. It's simplest terms, it's to be shown to be right. Um, an example, New Testament example. Jesus, in the final week of his life here on earth, was leaving the temple at the end of one of the days in that week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And his disciples are all agog, and they're looking at everything, and Jesus says, you know, don't you know that this is going to be pulled down one stone on top of another? Well, they don't understand it because it's the most magnificent structure they have ever seen. People came from around the empire to see what Herod had built, including the, the, the Temple Mount. But 70 years later, sure enough, the Romans, to put down a revolt, came in and leveled the place. And in that, Jesus was vindicated. What he said would happen, happened. Just because it didn't happen in his lifetime on earth, because he was crucified a few days later for making, after making that statement, he was still vindicated. So, so this is about Israel being vindicated. Well, what do they need to be vindicated from? Because they are the crazy people who have been saying to the world that there is only one God, not all those gods and goddesses of the Romans and the Greeks and the Mesopotamians and everything else. There's only one God, and that this one God had chosen them through whom this one God would reconcile everyone to God. So, for all... For the world at large, those are all crazy statements. So talking about Israel's vindication is to show that they had been right. Their God not, was not only the most powerful God, their God was the only God. And that God had chosen them. These, these seemingly insignificant people on the far eastern end of the Roman Empire. So, to repeat verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. So when Israel is saved, when Israel is lifted up by God, then everybody will see it, and Israel will, shown, will be shown to have been right. The nations, all the peoples, will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will bestow. Again, naming is very important in this world. It, it, it conveys real meaning and significance and um, giving somebody a power over you. For us, names are just labels. The best analogy I've ever come up with is a social security number. In the ancient world, you give them your name. It's like if I were to give my social security number to somebody. They didn't do it easily in the ancient world. And now the Israelites are going to be given a new name. And names are very meaningful in the Bible. That's why if you look at the footnotes that the translators give you, they often translate and tell you what the Hebrew word actually means. The name means something. Okay, and we're going to run into that in a minute here. Verse 3. You will be a crown of splendor in Yahweh's hand, a royal diadem, a royal, you know, tiara in the hand of your God. 
No longer will they call you, and here's one of the names, capital D, deserted. No longer will you go by the name deserted. No longer will you go by the name desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. And I wish the translators had put it here because in the NRSV they do. Beulah means, yes, Beulah means, I don't know why they didn't do that. Okay, so, but you will be called, here's the name, you are my delight. And your land Beulah, which means married, and your land, capital M, married. You will be my delight. That's the name. Traded in, that they'll be given, and they'll lose the name desolate and deserted. And your land will be named capital M, married. Sounds odd. For Yahweh will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. So who is that builder? Yahweh. And who's the you? Israel. You got it, Patty. That's exactly right. So what we have here is this metaphor that stretches all the way across scripture all the way to, to the end of the book of revelation where the the church is the bride of christ using marriage and the covenant of marriage as a metaphor for the covenant and the relationship between god and his people and it is why the covenant of marriage is taken so seriously And it is why when you read your Old Testament scriptures, so often God will use that metaphor to say to the Israelites, you are being faithless. You're committing adultery because you're chasing after all of these non-existent pagan gods and goddesses. And so whenever you come across it in the Bible, just let your heart be warmed by it. Because a marriage covenant between a man and a woman that is lived out in the richness of God's love is something to behold. It's good and it's gracious and it's intimate. Um, and the, the husband and the wife are bound together in a deep, mysterious way. And all of that speaks to the relationship that God has with his people and desires to have with his people at the same time. And it's just, it's, you know, it's just all, all it just pops up all over the place. And it's, I think it's, I've come to appreciate it more and more the longer I have done this. So look at the end of verse 5. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Verse 5. As the young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, that would be Yahweh, God, the Lord God, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I can remember when my son Matt got married to Courtney. 
And I'll tell you, Courtney was as beautiful a bride as I have ever seen. And we were in um, St. Andrew, and Matt was up at the front, where the grooms are, and Courtney was in the back, of course, and she is coming down the center aisle of the sanctuary, and Matt looked like he was going to explode he did. in joy. You talk about rejoicing. He was going to be, he was, he was rejoicing so much. It was like, it, it was just going to, it was just going to consume the whole space and everybody in it. This joy that he had in looking at Courtney as she was coming down that center aisle so that they would be wed husband and wife. And these are the kind of verses that it's so easy to let pass over us. But don't. God is choosing to use this metaphor very often and at great, and at, and at great depth. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you, says the prophet. Bringing God's word to these people to reassure them because what has happened? Right? I mean, they have sinned against God. They were faithless. That's how they ended up in prison in Babylon. So it hasn't been good. It's been terrible. But God comes back to them. And God will rejoice over them. He does rejoice over them. And, and God comes back to them time and time and time again. That's the story of the Old Testament. Is a people who won't be faithful and a God who who stays anyway. Okay? Anything online or there, or there, baby, or anything? No. Nope. nope. No comments. Okay. Point. Well, we always welcome them. Comments, you can type them in. I'm sure every person here types better than I do. Verse 6. Now, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on Yahweh, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now, who is the him, do you think? In verse 7, give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem, makes her the praise of the, praise of the earth. Give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest. Who's the him? I'm guessing it's still Yahweh. It is, my yeah. indeed, my dear, it is. So... Is that kind of, in a way, maybe is that like be praying to him constantly for this, to fulfill his... Beseeching him constantly, yes. praying with him constantly, yes. knock on the door, right. knock, 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 three times, four times, five times, whatever, be We're persistent. <laughs> There's parables Jesus tells about mm -hmm. being persistent. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it strikes people as, as odd... And I get that, that, that we are told to be relentless and persistent in our pursuit of God. As if we have to remind God of things that God actually forgot. But God doesn't forget. It's about the relationship. In a genuine relationship, the two partners are able to be persistent. Um... Let's see. I'm searching again for metaphors. Okay, so I'm, 
I've worked on many an Israel trip with many, many, many people, hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, some people are quick about getting to me the little pieces that I need from them. Other people are not so quick. <laughs> but it's always easier to go back and, and get it from the people I have a better relationship with. Right? All right, that's probably a crummy metaphor. Because God wants, it's, it, it's a relationship idea that you can have the kind of relationship with God that yes, you can pester God. Pester God, it's okay. If you can be angry with God, which we certainly find in the Old Testament and the Psalms, you can pester God. And Jesus says, yes, pester God. Knock once, knock twice, knock three times, right? It's good. It it shows a real Oh, Maybell, I'm so glad you're here. I was about to I was kind of wondering earlier, you know, where you were today. So that's great. Okay, so um You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest, give God no rest until he what? Keeps his promises. Till he establishes Jerusalem, makes her the praise of the earth. So, yeah. So when Christians say Maranatha, Maranatha, in the face of suffering and death, and they're impatient with when Jesus is coming back, there's nothing wrong with that. The book of Revelation ends with that. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus, come. Come on. Come on. <laughs> you know, you... I you think can't. you've caught me doing it a few times lately watching the news and this crime waves and all that yeah. stuff. I've just said it out loud like, I Come love on. my life here, God, right? but wow. But wow. And so, <laughs> and so here God, you know, this is, this is what people who love each other trust each other enough to do. That's a better way for me to put that, isn't it? Patty can be quite persistent with me. Oh, really? Because <laughs> she loves me, and I love her. There we go. Scott's brother, who I've known a lot longer than I know Scott, believe it or not. Yes. He calls me one word, relentless. <laughs> and what did Bill Merce call you? The bulldozer. Yeah. Yes. There we go. More insight into my lovely wife. Here, show them a little... <laughs> The little thing I was gifted by family members. <laughs> there is a bulldozer. I keep that on my desk. <laughs> Give, given to Patty to remind her that she is indeed a dozer. <laughs> Trust me, it's true. <laughs> but I do it nicely. It's, well, it's just part of her wonderfulness. <laughs> okay, verse 8. Now Yahweh has sworn by his right hand. And by his mighty arm, you know, you get these images of the mightiness of God. And of course, they're in fancy terms anthropomorphic, but they're powerful. Yahweh is sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise Yahweh. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So again, you get these big promises, and it's why I, I just I'm, I just think that for many Jews in Jesus's day, they are stale. They're stale. 
They can read them. And after 500 years, they're still waiting. 500 years. They're still waiting. And it's not a peaceful waiting. Not a peaceful waiting. They're, they're, the Romans, yeah, they kept the peace in one sense, but they did it with an iron hand and a velvet glove. And so at times it was there were a lot of Jews who died under Roman under Roman rule. So and it just feeds that that sense of uh, uh, like an, an old-fashioned alarm clock with the spring being wound tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And then Jesus comes and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Trust in the good news. It's happening. It's happening. <coughs> so... There we go. Verse 10. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. So that's interesting because if we were to go back to Isaiah 40, we would find the famous passage about preparing a way um, <coughs> for God. Um, and it would be about, you know, lowering the mountains and raising up the low points and flattening things out and building a highway for God at that famous opening to that is used in Handel's Messiah. Well, but here it's for the people. Not for God. Prepare the way for... In fact, let's just... Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's go back and look at Isaiah 40. Okay? So if I'm going to find my way back. We, I, I keep talking about things as they were. and Don't turn to them maybe as much as I should. Okay, Isaiah 40. This is... This is... This is the famous, famous passage that begins the second section of Isaiah. And so it goes like this. And this is the opening for Handel's Messiah. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for and that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Calling. Let me get it right. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. All sung by the tenor at the beginning of Messiah. So now go back to where we were in Isaiah 62. Can I make one quick comment? Yeah. I just really realized when you said that make sure you said it right I always thought it was a voice of one calling in the wilderness and then prepare the way for the Lord not in the wilderness you know what I mean there is a difference there is indeed I always just thought a voice of one calling in the wilderness John the Baptist because that's how it's used you yes. see 
the New Testament writers take that moment in Isaiah and use it for John the Baptist. But in translation yes. from the Hebrew, most of the translators do it the way yes. what you just noticed. But yeah, that's I never noticed that before. You know, sometimes those those little things are they just finally jump out at us, don't they? They do. Okay. So um So we're go back to Isaiah sixty two verse ten. I'll give you a second to get there. I'm going to take one another sip of my... Oh, well, this may be the end of my coffee. Would you like another one? Mm-mm. No, this is just a little afternoon coffee to give me a slight boost for the evening. So I'll be good company, baby. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, we're watching TV. You'll be or whatever. You'll be awake and perky. <laughs> yes. Cowboys play tonight. Okay. I guess. Okay. I don't mean to sound depressed about that, but sure, yeah, they do. Really. Isaiah 62, verse 10. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones, get everything out of the way. Make the make it all level. What's a highway? How do they build an interstate? They level everything, right? Mm -hmm. So they cut out the stuff that would, around the mountains, and they, and they put uh, bridges over the low spots and... They level everything up. Raise a banner for the nations, a sign, an ensign for the nations. Yes, so that they will all come streaming. Verse 11, Yahweh has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to his daughter Zion, O, this is to the nations of the earth, see your Savior has come. See his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. Who is that him? That's the question, isn't it? Who is the Savior? Who is the one that is lurking right underneath all of this text that we read about a suffering servant and the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord has fallen and been anointed and the one... Well, of course, this is for Christians. This is all Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean the Jews saw it that way. Some of these are messianic passages, some are not. But for Christians who read them in light of Jesus, well, of course we see Jesus in them. Should we see Jesus in them? Well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to answer yes, we should. These are all little, little signposts. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had long promised. That's why when Nicodemus in John 3 comes to see Jesus in the night and says to him, I, I don't understand, and then Jesus talks to him for a bit, and Nicodemus says, well, I don't understand. And Jesus says to him, but you're a teacher of the law, which means, for our purposes, the Old Testament. How can you not understand? I couldn't count the number of times Jesus says, if you understood the law and the prophets, you would understand what I'm doing, Jesus says. Because in that way, Jesus is woven all through the Old Testament because he is the one who will keep the covenant with God and enable the salvation of humankind. 
And there's all these little signposts, all these little street signs, big signs, little signs, spotlights, flashlights, floodlights, all, all pointing us to Jesus. So Linda Waldo is asked, would the Jews see this Savior as the Messiah? Some, you know, it's, it's, sometimes I'm surprised by the passages that are seen as messianic passages. I don't know that this one is so much because it's not as long and drawn out as others. But Jews had a lot of diverse ideas about who the Messiah would be. You know, we Christians today, we're, we're, we have a lot of diversity in the body of Christ. Well, the Jews in the first century, they were kind of the same way. Um, but clearly, they speak this message of hope that is centered upon a figure. Some could see that figure as simply Israel itself, the people of Israel themselves as a people, singular, or perhaps a lone singular person. And of course, that is who Jesus is. Um, Okay, look at verse 12. They will be called, and here's names again. First name, the Holy People, capital H, capital P. The, here's another name. They're going to go by the name of what? Redeemed of the Lord. <laughs> kind of like Queen Elizabeth II was the defender of the faith. Um, interestingly, a title that was given by the Pope to Henry VIII. Um, wow. Yeah, it was that far back because he, yeah, anyway. The redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, another name, sought after. Why? Because all the nations that have come streaming. So this is so cool. Sought after. <laughs> In today's vernacular, it would be like, hey, I want some of what you have. How come you're joyful and relaxed every day and I'm a wreck. If somebody says that to me, I'm going to say, well, come, come to St. Andrew with me. You might, you might find out. You know, you're missing a lot in your life. Come to St. Andrew with me. Meet the people. Meet Jesus. The whole thing. You will be called sought after. And what else will you be called? Another name? The city no longer deserted. Yeah? Because the city is going to be filled with people again. The city will begin to recover. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they will rebuild the walls and they will rebuild a temple of sorts and, and they will constitute themselves again as a people. Will they be a free people? Yes, they will. No, they will not. Why? Because they will still be part under the rule of some pagan oppressor like the like um, the Persians and then or looking a little bit later Alexander the Great or his successors they're not a free people they're a province in the great in the great empire okay. do they have a king like they used to have a king no they don't nope they get governors and other stuff like that and they have a brief period of hopeful independence with the Maccabees about 160 years before Jesus, but that proves to be a failure. 
come to nothing really in the long run. And in Jesus' day, who's the latest pagan ruler of these Jews? It's Rome. So the city won't be deserted. The city is not won't be deserted anymore. But there's still all of this promise making and promise keeping that has to lie ahead and has to lie ahead even when at, at the time Jesus arrives on the scene. So, okay. Anything else there? No. Hi, Andy. <laughs> I think Andy's just joining us. So. Yeah, well, hi, Andy. Glad you're here. So, okay. So now we're going to roll over to Isaiah 63. So I need to do some explaining before we even start. So let me go back to my slides a little bit. This is from last week when Jesus is rising to read in Nazareth. If you could... Um, Andy, we're about to start chapter 63 and I'm going to do a little introduction. And I have a map. Okay, so <clears throat> let's see. I guess this is kind of circular, but to, to understand your Old Testament well, you need to know your Old Testament well. In other words, the better you know the Old Testament, the easier it will be to, for you to see what's going on because we're about to enter a passage where God is going to be talking about Edom. Edom. So I've put together... The, I didn't put it together. I got this from Rose Maps. Here's this is a map of the Old Testament times and the different colored areas. There's a key to it to the left are the where the twelve tribes settled. And the outline you can see will be when they later coalesce into kingdoms. Finally, after a civil war and rebellion, they are settled in two kingdoms, Israel, the kingdom in the north, and Judah, in the kingdom in the south. So you can see some of the traditional enemies of Israel on the east and on the south. Ammon, the Ammonites. Moab, the Moabites. Edom, the Edomites. Amalek, the Amalekites. And on the Mediterranean side are the Philistines. These are not all coexisting and strong at the same time, but this is kind of where having that geography in mind is helpful. Now, Edom, the name Edom, is a play on Esau. If you go back to the story of Jacob and Esau, okay, the twin sons born to Isaac and Rebekah. Patty, if I mess this up somewhere along the way, you tell me. Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob. I'll name the older one first because they're twins, but Esau comes out first. So he has all the privileges of the firstborn. Esau and Jacob, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, Esau is all kind of red and hairy. And he's got red hair, and it's just red, 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 and that is Edom. And in their struggles between Jacob and Esau, and this, this, the story as it rolls out, Esau ends up going to lands that are south and east 
of Canaan to this land of Edom. And those are the descendants of Esau. And of course, centuries and centuries and centuries have passed. You know, a millennium and a half, more, more than a millennium and a half have passed. And when the Babylonians take the Jews into exile, leaving, a, for all intents and purposes, a deserted open city. There are people there, but they're poor. They can't defend themselves. The walls have been knocked down. The temple's gone. Edom, the Edomites swoop in and plunder the city during the during the Babylonian exile. And so that only drove home further the animosity which had been existing for centuries between the Jews, um, the children of Jacob, and the Edomites, the children of, of Esau. And when they plunder Jerusalem, while the Jews are in exile at the hands of the Babylonians, that's like the, that's like the last straw. And so six, chapter 63 is going to begin with a message about, about God's revenge on Edom on behalf of Israel. So let me pause and see if there... Patty, do you have questions I about do. that? I'm, no, I'm good. You I did just, that okay? You did that, I believe, just very well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. To the best of my knowledge. Okay. So, who is this coming from Edom? From Basra, with his garments stained crimson. Now that who, I'm not going to ask you who that who is, because that who is an unnamed warrior. So this is, this is like epic poetry. So this is a warrior who's returning, an, an Israelite warrior, a Jewish warrior, who is, who is returning from battling the Edomites. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. So now, in this epic poetry, this warrior seems almost to be like God himself. Or, you know, for me, it's like, it's like Jesus returning or something. He's bloodied, and, and the garments are stained crimson, but he's victorious, which is the essence of the cross, right? The essence of the cross is that Jesus dies. He's bloodied. He's hurt. He's been beaten. But he doesn't lose. The cross is not about Jesus losing. It's about Jesus winning because he was faithful all the way to the end. That's, that's where the victory is. That's the victory that matters. Everybody dies. Everybody can get bloodied. But Jesus is faithful. And um, so, I, so this is a famous line. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Well, why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress. Well, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. 
I trampled them down in my anger and, and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So, if you were to ask me, Linda Waldo, well, who's doing all of this? How would the Jews read this? They would read this as, this is God. This is God's victory over the Edomites. Rendered in this kind of poetic form, the returning warrior and stuff from battle, you know, but I, I don't know. For me, there's this, there's this underlying, underlying Jesus part who went to the battle. He went, uh, the warrior emphasizes that the warrior was all alone. And Jesus goes to the cross. For in large part, alone. Jesus dies. He's bloodied. All of that. So, you know, I, I it's just, I don't think the writer intends all of that. The writer 2,500 years ago, but I still can't help but see it. It 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 kind of it kind of prepares me to gaze upon the wonder of the cross. That that someone that someone would do that. Yeah, look at um, the beginning part of. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled that no one gave support. And to me, that just reminds me of after the guards have come and have taken Jesus away, how Peter denies him three times and no one is there at the cross for him. They're all hiding. He is alone. He is alone. And it's sort of like you, it's sort of like the language we did uh, maybe a month ago or six weeks ago when we were in Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant. Yes. Right? The lamb led to slaughter. Those pieces, they're all evocative to me of, of Jesus and the cross. And I personally believe that we're meant to see that. <laughs> Almost as if God would say, well, how can you not see that? What you just told Linda, you were explaining about that that might have been just that the Edomites, is that your answer to her question about what happened between Esau and Jacob? Well, okay, so, all right. So, so Jacob and Esau, you know the story about Jacob stealing Esau's birthright and then he steals the blessing, Rebecca's in on it all, but still, Jacob has to flee. And so he runs northward and doesn't come back for many, many, many years until until Rebekah is dead. And and he runs and he encounters Esau. Now they do, in the moment, neither one kills the other one. But what sort of genuine reconciliation is it? Because they agreed to head in two different directions. 
And so the animosity that underlies that story is what, for the Jews, explained their relationship with the Edomites as opposed to geopolitical problems or fighting over land or whatever it might be. It, it, it's um, the story of Jacob and Esau for the Jews was the way of understanding why they had such a terrible relationship with the Edomites. Okay. That's, the best, that's about the best way I could put it. If, if I'm remembering it all correctly, uh -huh. Esau really gives him a pass. Right? Yeah, I mean, it really. They're going to be slaughtered. Esau's really comes out yes, as a good guy because Jacob's guy. afraid it's going to be like off with his head. But he's not, no, Esau yeah. goes up and and embraces his brother. But it's still an uneasy thing. Gotcha. And they don't try to go settle and, and you know, sit in the living room, kick their feet up, and, you know, watch the NFL or something That's like that. Bad. That is not what they do. Okay? So. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit, right? This is what these prophetic books do, and they, they can be terribly confusing sometimes. That's why don't just plan on using footnotes and a study Bible a little bit and pay attention to the way the translators have done it and the headings they put in there because it if you just jumble it all together, it, it it's very hard to follow. So here we have a change in pace. It's another message. Maybe that's how I should. It's like a red, and we're now turning to a fresh sheet of paper. I will tell of the kindnesses of Yahweh, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all that Yahweh has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and his many kindnesses. He said, Surely they are my people children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. This, the, the children is the family of Abraham. God saves them in the Exodus. That is the great salvation story. And then God saves them time and time and time again. God doesn't walk away and leave despite their faithfulness. Surely they are my, pe my people children who will be true to me, and so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. Or, another translation of the Hebrew, which is mightily debated, is simply that God's presence, his presence, saved them. The part that draws a lot of attention in verse 9 is that it says... Pretty clearly for most people, I think, who know Hebrew, that's not me, in all their distress, God too was distressed. Hmm. In all their suffering, because that's kind of what distress is, he too was suffering. Can God suffer? Can God suffer? That's the question. That's a big theological question. There are a lot of books written about that. Um, it's called... The impassibility of God. Is God impassable? Not impossible, impassable. And it comes from the Latin word pasco, which means suffer. 
It is why we talk about the passion of the Christ. Jesus is suffering. The passion of the Christ comes from that word Pasco. We use the word passion to talk about sometimes um, extreme emotions because an old understanding that they can they can cause us to suffer. Um, but is God impassable? For many traditional theologians going back a long way, particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, the answer is yes. God is impassable. God cannot suffer. God cannot be distressed, as it says in this verse. And the re that we need to think of, the, however we think of the verse, we need to think of the verse in such a way that it doesn't imply that God actually, God actually suffers. Okay. Oh man, how do I get rid of that? How about this way? And I, this is this is my reading after a lot of years, kind of reading on not spending months and months studying this, but, but reading a good bit about it, that, and considering a lot of, uh, of the Bible, it comes from the idea that God is perfect and unchanging. And what that implies is that, well, if God's suffering, then he's changed from a state of perfection to something less than a state of perfection. I think that's all very much our good friend, the Greek philosopher Plato, who had a perfect, unmoved mover who was omniscient and omnipotent and wasn't even really a who, wasn't even really a who, but was untouchable by anything. And that is not the God I meet in the Bible. The God I meet in the Bible is a God who rolls his proverbial sleeves up and goes to work with people and chases people and can how can you claim to love someone and not put yourself at the risk of being hurt what would it say if we said well God loved the whole world and then half the world turns their back on God Is, could you then really say God loved the world? To me, love and the risk of suffering because of that love, are, it's just part of, the, part of the definition of it. You might say lots of things about it, but I, I think with, if you don't have love, you don't have heartbreak. It's true. Right? It's just love has, love has risks. I heard N.T. Wright speak about this one time, and he was trying to talk about Jesus and what Jesus really knew about what was going to happen and all that kind of stuff. And as I recall, his, his sort of bottom line was, you can't take away from Jesus the risk that comes with believing that he was loved by God. Because with that belief that you are loved always comes the risk that you're not. And, and I don't know. I, I I think I have. Well, I don't. I have on my shelf. I don't think I could find them quickly. Um, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Terence Fretheim. He wrote a volume called "The God Who Suffers." 
pulling together lots and lots of passages to make the case that yes, we don't worship some supreme being that Plato envisioned. We worship, we claim to the world that the God who is, is the God revealed in scripture. And that's a God who's willing to get messy. And that's a God who's willing to be distressed. How could Jesus, God's only begotten son, be nailed to a Roman cross, suffer and die, and the Father not be distressed or suffer through that? I I think it's just I think it's I think it's a it's it's a wrong notion about God to think that God doesn't suffer. It it's it's one of the best parts of who God is. Not a weakness. It's not a weakness to love someone so much that you could be hurt by them. That's not a weakness. That's what love is. What do you think, Patty? I totally agree. And everybody knows that you and I both are movie people and um one of the movies that we, we just recently watched after not watching it for almost 20 years was The Passion of the Christ, which you, I believe, told me you would never watch it again. It's a pretty hard movie to watch for me. But that, the most poignant scene in the movie for me is Jesus on the cross and how Mel Gibson portrayed that with just, from heaven, one large teardrop falling on, on so the how, cross. And what that, what that symbolized, how could that not be? Right? Yes. Jim Adams did write something there for you. I believe God must have suffered when Jesus was being crucified, when his people rejected God's purpose time and time again. I think Jim's right. And Andy asked the question that led, that has led to, in our day, for, and not just our day, but, but led many theologians away from the traditional position. Here's what I my own take on what happened in Christian theology is that Christian theology became too infected by Plato. Plato's great, smart man, lots of good things to say, but I think Christian theology, Christian understanding of God and and humankind became too infected by Plato's ideas and not as reliant upon Scripture became too insistent upon logic and not enough upon the revelation that we find in Scripture. That's how it came to be, I think, Andy. And so, and you would still, I, you could look around the web. You you will still find theologians, um, often Roman Catholics, one ones who will try to convince you that God can't suffer. And I just think they're they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I just think they're wrong. And I could point you to, to others like Terence Fredheim and Dennis Wynn and others who would say, no, 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 no. You know, you're, you're, you're being drawn in the wrong direction. It's sort of like Calvin who starts his theology at the wrong place. And if you start at the wrong place, you're probably going to end at an unfortunate place. And Calvin starts with the sovereignty of God and he ends up with God ordaining everything, including I don't know, Auschwitz and murder. And, but if you start, if your starting place at understanding God is, well, God is love, then that leads you to 
I think, the biblical view of who God is. A God who loves his people so much that he's just after them, after them, after them, after them. Time and time again. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there today because impassibility is, the impassibility of God isn't something <laughs> we talk about very much, but it's it's out there. And, and when you see a verse like this and all the distress, he too was distressed. There are even still a lot of theologians who want to explain that way that away rather than simply accept that God is so deeply involved with his people loves them so much that when they are distressed God is distressed and look at the second line of verse 9 and the angel of his presence saved them now that's hard to translate um, the NIV has it this way, the NRSV has it, and his presence saved them. I don't care so much because sometimes in the Old Testament you can't really pull apart the angel and God. It, but I would translate, I, I think the NRSV gets this right. I think it should be, and his presence saved them. Because we're about to run into all of these references to God's Spirit and God's Holy Spirit. And God's Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of God. Um, so I don't want to make too much out of the translation difference because they don't really matter. The important part is to see that it is God who has saved them. Not anyone else. They didn't save themselves. They didn't part the seas, part the waters of the Red Sea, right? God did this for them. God saved them in just the same way that God saves you and me. We have freedom, but it's only enough freedom to resist. We don't have the power to save ourselves. We can, we, we can turn away from God if we want to, and to our own ruin, but we can't save ourselves. Maybe a metaphor is like, well, if you think of salvation as the ship pulling up to the island that Tom Hanks is on with his volleyball, you know, Tom Hanks could stay on the island if he wanted to, but he can't get himself off of it. Though he does in the movie. I get it. Okay, so we'll look at verse 9. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence, the angel of God's presence, saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Time and time again, he carried them. He lifted them up. They whined and complained. God carried them. Verse 10, yet they rebelled. And they grieved the Holy Spirit. Yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Sure, how many times did they re rebel? I don't know. I couldn't count them. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, is this the full-fledged understanding of the third person of the Trinity that we Christians have post-Jesus and post-Pentecost? No. But it's still a striking place, isn't it? They grieved his Holy Spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a little, you know... It, it's again, it's a little signpost. It's a little hint to what is coming that 
that perhaps in God's very being, God is relational. They grieved his Holy Spirit. For a Jew, they're going to, it's going to be a lower lowercase h and a lowercase s. Okay? Um, and you're just grieving God. Well, of course, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in Trinitarian language, you're, gr you're, you're grieving God. But if we, if we stop and think of it in a Christian way, notice that the Holy Spirit is a person. You, you don't grieve a chair. Well, I mean, you, you could grieve the loss of a chair, but this stuff by making a chair grieve. Chairs don't grieve. People grieve. Persons grieve. The Holy Spirit's a person. Um, yet they rebelled and grieved, grieved God's Holy Spirit. They grieved God. They grieved God's Spirit. They grieved Him in His very heart. It's like it's like it's like Genesis six, when it, when God grieves over what has come of God's creation, of how terrible. The people have become evil, evil, evil everywhere, morning till night. And it grieved God's heart when it come. And of course it grieves God's heart what the people have done here in abandoning God and chasing after these stupid, wooden, and stone, meaningless, pagan gods and goddesses. How must God have felt when... Moses came down Mount Sinai to the body. You've seen the movie. God come, Moses comes down Mount Sinai and the people have made a golden calf. And they are thanking that stupid golden calf for saving them from Pharaoh. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. They would bear the consequences of their actions. When they ran away from God, the world fell in on them time and time again. How do you think it is that the great nation of Israel became no more than a tiny, tiny little spot on the map and then overrun by the, by the Babylonians? They certainly understood it as their abandonment of God. Verse 11, then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? It's a shepherd being Moses. Where is he who set, this is God, his Holy Spirit among them? When people ask me, can you find the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? This is one of the places I... I go to because it's just it's it's explicit though you should not think to yourself well these Jews understood the Trinity no they didn't there's not enough <laughs> where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses's right hand who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown 
If you read the story of the Exodus, a good part of why it all happens is because God wants the whole world to see who God really is. And why would God want the whole world to see who God really is? Because it's all about the world coming to God. About the world acknowledging who God really is. Verse 13, the one who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. <laughs> That's generous to themselves. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest. Ah, yes. By whom? By the Spirit of Yahweh. This is how you guided your people. To make for yourself a glorious name. So I think what we're going to do, rather than feeling I have to rush to get through the rest, we're going to stop here, and we're going to come back there around, you know, in right where these verses are to pick up next week. Um, and uh, Hey, next week we're going to be in October. Yeah, we will. Next week it'll be October 3rd That's right. that we're meeting. Wow. Time is pressing. Crazy. Time is going on. Surely it'll feel fall by then. Surely. <laughs> I've seen the 10-day. I don't think it's going to be much different than today, Patty. But anyway, oh. okay. All right. Very good. You want to come around, Patty? Sure. All righty. Good class, Scott. Thank you. We actually got through a lot today. We did. We did. We did, didn't we? Yes. So. And we're making Isaiah understandable to us, aren't we? Yes, we are. I didn't think we could do that. But, but you have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are. <laughs> we are indeed. Some parts of it are more understandable than others. So yes. there we go. But I think it's going to help all of us when we, you know, when we hear certain things, uh, certain parts of Isaiah in the New Testament. In the yeah, because there's a lot and, of it. And Jesus saying it himself. So it's like, oh, yeah, I remember oh, yeah. that now. Yeah, I don't remember On that Monday, <laughs> on that Monday. Back in June, 22. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you all for joining us today. Um, please remember, we're always there on Tuesday at noon, as long as we're in town at P in Piro Hall, uh, making our way through 1 Corinthians. Sure are. And uh, we're kind of cl coming closer we're to the end. We're in 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. So if you ever have any questions about the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection, that's going to be the place yes. to be because that is the big treatment of it in the New Testament. Yep. We have a, a number of people that come um, in person on Tuesdays. Some and bring their some... lunch, some don't, and people also watch online. So yep. either way. Anyway, either way. let's go. Pray us out of here, baby. We just want to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, for taking care of us and watching over us and allowing us to be here today to have this time to study your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to watch over us. Take care of us, God. We pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, do your will every day. We pray for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives. And uh, we do we do sometimes just jump into things without really taking the time to pray and to ask you in the direction that we should go. Lord, we just, again, are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, 
And we pray, God, that you'd watch over this group and our family and our friends. And Lord, once again, um, lots of stuff is always going on in our country. But right now we have this force of nature, this hurricane coming up towards uh, Florida. And we just pray, God, um, for your help in this, Lord. I don't know, maybe the storm could break up or become less of a storm. Whatever, Lord, we're going to leave that up to you. But we just pray, God, that you would watch over the folks in Florida as the storm moves towards them. Lord, we lift up all these prayers this afternoon. We pray them all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bye, guys. Okay, everybody. Adios. See you soon.